Anna Minton has two seminal books on the politics of cities and housing. The first, Ground Control, was published in 2009. That gives an account of how the privatisation of public space created a form of architecture in our cities which increased mistrust and social division. Her second book, Big Capital, was released in 2017 and focuses more specifically on London's housing crisis. And it's that second book which I sat down with Anna to discuss for what I think became a really fascinating conversation. In Big Capital, Minton presents an argument as to how the increased influence of global investment has distorted London's housing market with disastrous consequences for renters, both in the social and private sectors. And the centrepiece of the book is a study of so-called estate regeneration, and in particular, the redevelopment of two estates in Southwark, which is an inner London borough just south of the Thames. The first of those is the Haygate, which was a group of high-rise blocks just off the Elephant and Castle, made up of 3,000 homes, the vast majority of which were social housing. I say was because between 2011 and 2014, the entire estate was demolished. It was replaced by 2,700 apartments, of which only 82 were social housing. The second big estate Minton addresses is just a mile south of the Haygate and borders Burgess Park. That estate is called the Aylesbury. It contains 2,700 flats, most of them social housing. Like the Haygate, the Aylesbury was subject to redevelopment plans and residents who resisted were subject to a pretty grim bullying campaign. However, as you'll hear from Anna, the Aylesbury regeneration would ultimately have a different trajectory to the Haygate. The story of both estates feels quite close to me. In my early 20s, I lived in squats and co-op housing around and between those two estates. I had lots of friends involved in housing campaigning and the council's handling of both the Aylesbury and the Haygate had always been the characteristic example of the most toxic side of gentrification. I began my conversation with Anna by asking her how these regeneration schemes fed into the central argument made in Big Capital. Yeah, I mean... That was certainly one of the sort of key motivating factors. I think so many things had come together to create this really acute housing crisis, you know, which was sort of a quantum step different from what we'd seen before the financial crisis. We'd had a housing crisis for 20 odd years, but after the financial crisis, it just moved into another sort of onto another level, really. And I think there were sort of a number of pressures which were occurring that I I sort of thought really needed to be highlighted. And one was the sheer amount of money coming into London and into the housing market in particular, you know, the sort of the big capital of the book. And at the same time, we were seeing the decimation, the destruction of social housing, you know, most sort of accurately reflected literally in in the demolition of more than a hundred estates all over the city so you know you had these super prime sort of golden postcodes and all these luxury uh, apartment developments going up and then you had you know all of these estates just being raised to the ground and then you also had the pressures of um david cameron's austerity program and you know the 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 lowering of benefits so you know there there were all of these pressures at the same time and i wanted to write about them all together and i wanted to actually show that it was all about the same system you know it wasn't sort of specific issues it wasn't no regulation 
low regulation, you know, so much money coming in. Um, it wasn't about building luxury apartments. Um, it wasn't about student housing. It wasn't about shared ownership. It wasn't about the crisis in part private renting. It wasn't about the destruction of council housing. It was actually about all of it, all together. And it was all part of the same picture, which is all motivated by the finan financialization of housing, by which I mean really seeing every aspect of land, property and housing as a product from which we want to make you know, as much money as we possibly can and removing every aspect of housing as a home uh, and as a human right. So the destruction of council estates was a key element of this larger structural picture. Maybe it would help to sort of put ourselves in the shoes of an international capital owner, right? So I suppose your, your book is about how international capital was sort of shaped the housing market and the rental market and sort of the lives of, of Londoners, essentially. I'm sure you could write a similar argument about New York or Berlin or wherever. If you are someone, you're sitting on a lot of capital, you might be from England, you might be from Hong Kong, you could be from, from anywhere, but you want to put that money somewhere where it gets you a return. What kind of housing do you want to invest in? What are you doing with your money when you're looking around London? Where can I put this to get a return? What are you, what are you hoping for? Yeah, I mean, I think first off, London has long been seen as a safe place for investing money in property, you know, for a number of reasons. It has historically, I think rather less so now, but historically been seen as relatively politically stable. Uh, it's got a good education system, schools, universities, which you know, foreign investors might wish to buy properties for and send their children to. It's got, you know, high quality amenities, social life, restaurants, you know, theatres, you know, cultural life. So it's been seen as a sort of attractive global city that, that, that people would like to sort of, you know, wealthy people would like to have a foothold in. And it's got so little regulation and paid so little attention to where the money was coming from that, investment from dubious sources didn't have to to worry too much about that but thinking about you know where in particular if i was a you know ultra high net worth individual i sort of pretended to be one actually i went to um battersea power station and pretended i pretended i was working for one uh i said i you know i wanted to look around uh, one of the apartments for my sh greek ship owning uh boss um you know, where would I be interested in investing? And I think, you know, the property market always has these agglomerations of hotspots and, you know, super prime areas which go crazy. And even within a really overheated property market like London, you know, you have areas like Holland Park and Knightsbridge and, you know, Hampstead and Highgate, which are insane. So if you've got that sort of money, you know, you're going to put it in one of those super um, prestigious locations. And then do people live in them? Or, you know, what? how many of these places stay empty? Is it just, I, I'm going to buy this house. I know it's going to go up yeah. in value. The interest, you know, it, it's going to go up in value at a higher speed than I would yeah. get interest if I put this in a bank. So I'm going to park it there. Yeah. You, know, you, could, you, you could just sit on it. Or do these people also use it? Does their I daughter stay there the when she goes to private school? is that it's really hard to get a clear picture of this. 
because actually, you know, the field work involved in working it all out, you know, it's a, it, these are studies which change all the time and, you know, the work isn't, hasn't really been done. But we do know, I mean, at least when I wrote Big Capital, you know, I think 25% of properties in Knightsbridge were empty. And, you know, there was a sort of significant feeling that, you know, a lot of the local restaurants and amenities, you know, had become much emptier. And this phenomenon of lights out London, you know, where you'll go past developments and you can just see that the lights aren't on. It's the same in New York, you know, where people buy for speculation and they don't buy to live. But at the same time, I think some of the properties probably are lived in. Um, In fact, I know they are lived in. Sometimes you get these very wealthy individuals who may own six homes around the world in, you know, desirable locations and they will spend a bit of time every year in, in them. So they'll be lived in occasionally. And I suppose let's, let's get down to this relationship between um, these super high net worth individuals investing in London and the destruction, the, re- the redevelopment of, of housing estates. Um, so sort of take me through the step by step, this sort of uh, ripple process yeah. by which you go from high net worth individuals who want to invest in very sort of super elite parts of the cities and then a decision by a Labour council in Southwark to say, let's completely knock down this council estate and build a load of luxury flats in its place. What's the, yeah. How does that affect work? What's the mechanism? Well, I, 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 I'd call it the trickle down of wealth, really. But obviously, I would see that trickle down of wealth in a in a rather more negative way uh, than perhaps has traditionally been seen. You know, rather than a rising tide floats all boats, which has been a more sort of, you know, stereotypically Tory way of looking at trickle down. Actually, wealth does trickle down and it raises land values and housing and property prices as it goes. But as it does that, it displaces local people and local communities and pushes them out of these expensive areas. And when you see, it comes back to this idea of the rent gap, um, which is a spur for areas rising in value and is the spur for, for the gentrification of areas. Where you have an area where values are quite low, perhaps a centrally located area, which could become desirable if, let's say, the right kind of properties were built there, the local authority might look very favourably on partnering with a developer to build a luxury development where a low-value council estate sits and then you reconfigure the area and you have lots of really expensive properties at a much higher value and actually your your community has changed as well so it's it's sort of the trickle down of wealth you know as 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 land values rise and the potential the key point is the potential for land values rises all across the city and particularly in centrally located areas but because housing prices are now so high throughout Greater London. It doesn't just have to be the inner ring. You know, it may have started out like that, but now it's really the whole of, of the whole of London. 
So I want to give you an alternate history and get you to tell me why it didn't happen. So I think there's a really interesting stat in your book. So I think 42% of land in Southwark was owned by the council at one point in time. I'm not sure if it still is. And so you could put yourselves in the shoes of Southwark Council. You say, look, we're cash strapped. Austerity is going on, of course. We can't blame them for that. But we are sitting on these incredibly valuable assets. We have all of this real estate, lots of it in central London. So for, for anyone who's listening who, who hasn't seen the Haygate estate, it's just off the Elephant and Castle roundabout. So really central, big, big piece of land, you know, uh, would be worth a lot. Now, if you were sort of a, a council who was interested in, in housing ordinary people, you could say, look, this could be denser. We could have more people living here. Also, it could be more of a mixed community. I mean, that's controversial. It depends if if people want that, but you can imagine them saying that. And um, we want to make everyone's flats a bit nicer. Now you can say, look, what we're going to do, we own this very expensive land. We're going to build a few luxury flats, you know, maybe a few thousand luxury flats. And we're going to use all of that money to build a few thousand new social homes. We're going to increase the number of social homes on here. And they're going to be amazing because we've got all of this money, all of this windfall from this land that is in our ownership that we've had for years. Why didn't that happen? Um, Well, it's interesting, really, because something quite different almost did happen. I mean, not exactly the way you've painted it, but there were very different plans for the Haygate initially, which involved a lot of community participation and consultation and which took place over years when it was decided that, you know, the Haygate, something did need to be done to refurbish it and improve it. You know, there, there was a there was a really extended period where residents and the council drew up new plans for, you know, for what they wanted to see. And it was just decided when I think the Lib Dems took over the council in 2004 not to pursue that approach and that was in common with a number of other councils who were pursuing these approaches which were very much where the council partners with a private developer um you know it was a sort of the era of private public partnerships you know that was pretty much the only game in town so I can imagine that councils felt if we don't do it this way, we're not really going to do anything. And we don't have the resources to carry out a sort of public sector led development in the manner of, you know, other European municipalities where that would be the standard model. model. This just became the only way of doing things. So it was either do it like this or get left behind. That's interesting. So you've got you've got a, a council. They're looking at the Haygate. We're back in the the mid noughties. They're saying something needs to change here. Um, it's crumbling. It needs refurbishment. Um, we could sort of do this ourselves and do it how we want to, but we don't have the capacity to. Obviously, the state has been massively stripped back since the nineteen eighties. The only people who can make anything of this piece of land is a private developer. We'll go to a private developer. Why at that point don't they say, look, Mister Private Developer? There are a few private developers we could give this piece of land to, and we're going to give it to whoever will build the most social homes alongside their luxury homes. And this should still be attractive to you because your luxury flats are still going to be very expensive, and we're going to make you compete with each other to build the most social homes, and then we're still going to get loads of them. I mean, I think it's because simply the sort of political will to do that was was not there at all. Um, I mean, it was also 
motivated by a stigma against council estates and the belief that council estates brought down values in an area, they created problems, social problems, they created a bad reputation for areas. You know, you, you started to have all of this rhetoric about, you know, council estates destroying people's life's chances and we should tear them down and, you know, give people better opportunities. You never really heard about what would actually happen to those people. It was more somehow the disappearance of the council estate would improve everything. Um but, you know, we had moved away from the era of council housing. We stopped building council housing at the end of the 1970s. Like, I think 1980 was the last year when really substantial amounts of council housing were built. So 20 years later, you know, that was a historical way of doing things. No one was building social housing um, at scale. Housing associations had been supposed to build much more social housing, but they never, ever even remotely, like, breached that gap. So it just wasn't a model. And the political will for that model wasn't wasn't there. Uh, I mean, a really telling uh, example for me, I think it was the Commonwealth Games in um, Glasgow. I'm not quite sure what year it was. It might have been... I remember it, it features in your, your yeah. book, very, very sort of yeah. evocative image. Yeah, exactly. And the Red Road Flats uh, in Glasgow were due for demolition. And um, Glasgow City Council decided in their wisdom that as part of the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth Games, they would film the demolition of the Red Road Flats. You know, which is sort of astonishing. You know, it's like something to celebrate. And it didn't happen because there was a complete outcry. But, you know, the reason I think that's such a telling example is because politically, the end of council housing was seen as really, really positive. So, you know, in answer to your question, central government and local government didn't want to build council housing. Local government wasn't allowed to and wasn't able to because of all the various changes to the housing revenue account. But, you know, there was no desire for it. That was the first part of my conversation with Anna Minton. We went on to discuss the disastrous effects of regeneration on the Haygate and Ellsbury estates, whether corruption might have had anything to do with the deals that were made, and whether councils have got any better at defending social housing since she wrote Big Capital. To listen to that, become a Patreon subscriber for as little as £3 a month. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. You'll get access to at least two extra shows a month, all while making this show sustainable into the future. We really do appreciate it. <laughs> 